انا في الوقت الحالي كان عايش في سجن غزه عدوي الاول والمباشر حماس وليس الاحتلال. Are you aware that Gazans have been risking their lives to tell their personal stories for years? They told harrowing, heartbreaking stories of life under Hamas rule. Stories of uh, shakedowns of local merchants, forced repression of women and their most basic personal rights. Joseph Browdy is the brave founder of the Center for Peace Communications. Joseph has created the extraordinary investigative audio series, Voices from Gaza. He has been smuggling anonymous audio from inside the Gazan territory across the globe for over 18 months, sharing unreported accounts of young Gazans barricading areas from Hamas to prevent their being used as human shields. Joseph, thank you for being my guest and sharing these incredible stories of human plight, resilience, and desolation. Sometimes technology doesn't work. Sometimes technology isn't available. This episode of Some Future Day covers a very serious topic, the recent terrorist attack on Israel and the ensuing war. Innocents have been victimized and murdered. Humanity's dark side is exposed. On October 7th, during a major Jewish holiday and Shabbat, Hamas terrorists breached Israel's highly protected border. Israel's complex monitoring infrastructure of drones, cameras, sophisticated sensors, remote-operated machine guns, and cyber spying was catastrophically insufficient as Hamas worked around and overwhelmed it. Israel's $1 billion smart wall, the Iron Wall, its security barrier on Gaza, failed. Is this a case of technological hubris? How could Israel's high-tech superiority fail to its low-tech adversary? Hamas used bulldozers and hang gliders to illegally cross into Israel. It was a huge assault. According to multiple news outlets, including the Times of Israel, terrorists attacked 22 locations outside of the Gaza Strip, and 10,000 rockets have been fired at Israel since October 7th. It is estimated 1,200 people died from the terrorist attacks. 240 people were taken hostage, including a nine-month-old Israeli infant, one of 32 children. These staggering figures are the result of the deadliest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. According to the Washington Post, more than 11,000 people have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. Roughly 40% of them, children. Two separate sources briefed U.S. intelligence that a small cell of Hamas operatives planned the deadly surprise attack on Israel by communicating via a network of hardwired phones built into Gaza's tunnels for over two years, according to CNN. The sources said the subterranean phone connections allowed its operators to communicate secretly and avoid Israeli intelligence. Above ground today, Gazans maintain mobile and internet services. The Poltel Group, a Palestinian company that is a major provider in the region, said the landline, mobile, and internet services were gradually being restored in the Gaza Strip as its technical teams worked to address the damage to the internal network infrastructure under challenging conditions. 
Other tech-related topics surrounding this situation include access to satellite service and perhaps the use of cryptocurrency by Hamas. But for today's episode, we simply examine audio recordings. The following is a mashup from Voices from Gaza. I will translate the actual testimonies of the Gazans between October 18th and October 28th after the war commenced. At this time, as a person living in the prison that is Gaza, my prime immediate enemy is Hamas, not the occupation. I have no house, no life, nothing. We're condemned to suffer because of the stupid organization. Who made us live in poverty in Gaza? Not the Jews, Hamas. Because of the events we saw on October 7th, the world changed its view of the Gaza Strip. Everybody came to believe we're terrorists. Who cut people's heads off, comparing us with ISIS? A lot of people suffer from this. To be candid, Hamas has utterly wrecked the Palestinian people. I hope our voice will reach the outside world. Joseph, welcome to Some Future Day. It's, it's really an honor to have you as a guest. Thank you. The Center for Peace Communications is really an incredible organization. You are the founder and its president. Can you take a minute just to give our audience an idea as to what the Center for Peace Communications does, your mission, and how you're impacting people's lives around the planet? Well, the CP Center for Peace Communications is focused on cultural change. And its center of gravity is the Middle East and North Africa. And it is at the core about enabling um, reformist liberal uh, forces in the region to do things they've always wanted to do, but lack the tools, the platform, and the international network to do it. And this is especially important with the so-called axis of resistance states, countries like Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, uh, Gaza, where people have had more than a taste of life under these nihilistic ideologies, and they want a different future. But not only have they been silenced, but those who rule them have been very effective in monopolizing the narrative of what's going on in these countries and uh, pretending to speak on behalf of the people they rule. The Center for Peace Communications helps um, these people realize their aspirations by connecting with the outside world, partnering with like-minded actors in other countries, um, all for the sake of, uh, of building a better future. So Joseph, from a, from a, like a macro level, just to, to start at a higher level before we drill it down, these regions, uh, how do you get to the individuals that you feel are perhaps brave enough to tell their stories or to um, actually listen to your content? Um, how do you find these people and, and uh, where are they exactly? My colleagues and I have been working in the Middle East and North Africa for, for the most part, in terms of our staff, all of our professional lives. And so building human networks is something that we do both um, professionally and personally. These are our friends um, and 
you know, these are people who come to our weddings and we live our lives with them together. It's sort of a, a trajectory of, of trust building and friendship and so on. To the larger question of how you expand that network, though, when you uh, learn the language that is spoken in the area and uh, spend time there looking for people who want positive change, it isn't hard to find them at all. Um, and what you find is they have been looking for you. They have been waiting for someone to come around and, uh, and ask how the world can lend a hand. So once, if you are prepared to breach the language barrier and the cultural barriers and put the time into it, it is not hard to build up a human network of very, very brave people who want to uh, challenge the extremist uh, forces that dominate. So speaking about you personally, um, have you been on the ground in, in most of these regions? Like where, where have you been, Joseph? Like where's your personal, where are your personal relationships? Yes, I've, uh, lived, worked, studied in most countries in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, uh, these include, uh, nearly every Arab country as well as Iran where I was a graduate student at the University of Tehran. That's when I was studying Persian um, in graduate school um, and Israel. And do you find, again, generally speaking, that these individuals within your network um, come from a, a certain type of background? Um, like, let, let's look at like business sectors, for example. Are these people that are professionals, lawyers, doctors, people that are perhaps perhaps academics or does it reach beyond um the the professions well uh first of all you can find these uh, voices and actors in any profession including religious uh leadership in other words we conventionally think of clerics in the region as people who are engines of extremist indoctrination and for good reason and yet even um even in Islamic seminaries, there are growing voices, in some cases supported by various states that are promoting a tolerant alternative interpretation of religion to the one that's been pushed on these populations for so long. I'll say in terms of professions that you can, well, you can find them anywhere. Some of the most interesting opportunities to promote change are with people in the media profession, because uh, first of all, uh, media is a tool of uh, and, and a sort of an engine of cultural change in any society. Uh, and second, because it tends to um, be a magnet for creative, out-of-the-box thinkers. So we have one of my books is called Broadcasting Change, Arabic Media as a Catalyst for Liberalism, uh, because it talks about the many um, sort of centers of liberal transformative elements that are broadcasting, writing, not only in journalism, but also in, in the entertainment field, where they believe that entertainment media is a tool of change. So that's um, very prominent in our minds. But media also, from the research that I did, Joseph, it seems like people in media also are at high risk. It seems in certain territories that you're describing right now, 
the government controls the media. In fact, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Hamas controls the media in Gaza. And um, if the reporters or, or, the, or the broadcasters are not providing statements or video footage of exactly that of which the um, controlling government wants, their, their lives are at risk and, and their families and friends' lives are at risk. And so, so how do you get over that, that hurdle? And, and what have you encountered as it relates to people in the media anywhere on the planet? Indeed, as you said, in Gaza, Hamas dominates media. It, first of all, only allows Arabic language media that is supportive of its ideology and agenda to print and broadcast from there. And it intimidates uh, foreign media because anyone who takes an interest, even from an international wire service and so on, in reporting from Gaza on local dissent to Hamas authority, will be at least deported. And so it is very effective in enforcing a communications blockade on the Gaza Strip. One of the reasons we launched Whispered in Gaza was to help Palestinians overcome that blockade. But what I was referring to earlier is other portions of the region where uh, media has been granted a certain amount of license, often because the tolerance agenda is consistent with that of the government. So, for example, the UAE has been investing a lot in promoting tolerance within its borders and beyond. And so it allows uh, liberals to flex some of their inclinations, not all of them, right? This is not about promoting democracy per se, uh, but certainly promoting some of the values that are among the underpinnings of uh, good governments, good governance, and and at some point perhaps democracy. So, Joseph, you mentioned whispered in Gaza. This is a project that um, I thought was super compelling. Can you tell the audience a little bit about what whispered in Gaza is and when it was produced, and then? And then we can build on top of that theme a little bit. As I mentioned earlier, if you want to find voices uh, that are supportive of, of peace and transformative change and development, the best place to look is uh, countries that are dominated by Iran and its proxies, because they're the ones who know most viscerally the misery of life under that ideology and want something different. And Gaza is a place where in 2019, a thousand young people braved gunfire and prison to demonstrate against Hamas uh, for the sake of having a better life. That protest was brutally suppressed and not a lot of attention was paid to it by the outside world. So these people felt that they had taken an enormous risk, but they were not being heard. We wanted to find a different way to amplify or platform those voices. And so what we began to do last year was to interview uh, Gazans inside the Strip about their lives, their travails, their aspirations, doing so for the purpose of uh, broadcasting their voices to an international audience and promising anonymity to the interviewees, because that is the only way 
that they can safely communicate their message and tell their stories. They told harrowing, heartbreaking stories of life under Hamas rule, stories of uh, shakedowns of local merchants, forced repression of women and their most basic personal rights, uh, what it is that leads so many youth to flee by sea using organized crime cartels to attempt to smuggle themselves and often not surviving the trip. And of course, what it was that motivated so many people to demonstrate against Hamas and how they feel now that that demonstration had failed. What we did with these voices was to bring together a team of animators, illustrators, and musicians to creatively depict the stories they told. And after making some technical sort of alterations to the voice recording so that it was not easy to identify uh, who the speaker was, we turned their testimony into a series of 25 animated videos called Whispered in Gaza. Whispered because you can't say it out loud. We released them in seven languages, in, including, of course, the original Arabic through Al Arabiya, one of the largest news outlets in the Middle East, as well as uh, English, Spanish, Portuguese, Farsi for Iranian consumption uh, and other languages. And um, we also showed it to experts uh, in the field, Palestinians, Jordanians, Israelis, and European and American uh, policy voices, even Iranians uh, who found this very interesting, and published a monograph uh, alongside Whispered in Gaza called A Platform for Silenced Voices. And we released that at the beginning of this year. Of course, it, it drew enormous interest at the time. It, it had a viewership of 7 million globally. But since the tragedy of October 7th and the war that is unfolding uh, in Gaza, its interest in it, in whispering Gaza, has grown. And we were asked also by a lot of friends and colleagues to create a new series, which we are now doing in partnership with the Free Press. The following is a mashup from Whispered in Gaza. Again, I will translate the actual testimony of the Gazans. This testimony all comes before October 7th, before the war started. There's a false stereotype that Palestinians in Gaza love rockets and wars. The wars that happen in Gaza are waged by the Hamas government for political aims that serve them alone. If you're a Gazan citizen who opposes war and says, I don't want war, you're branded a traitor. It's forbidden to say you don't want war. They exploit us under the pretext of resistance. Consider the wars that happened in 08, 12, 14, and 20. They made a profit out of it, and only the people suffered. Whenever there is a war, and when they get more aid money, they're the ones who benefit, and we get nothing. So, you know, obviously the free press gives you an impressive platform, and that's great. Um, I think it's fantastic. But I'm just curious, like, from a tech perspective, when you, pre-October 7th, met with these individuals and recorded their stories... Was that done in person and were there particular places on the ground? Because obviously I would imagine they were still fearful 
of um, being caught by the Hamas government if they were participating. So how did you protect not just their identity from a post-production and distribution perspective, but how did you protect, protect them during the recording process before the war? Well, the prime, our prime directive of uh, making good on our commitment to protect their identities leads us, understandably, to be thoughtful about you know, how we describe or characterize the mechanics of this. But what I'll say about the mechanics is, in an interconnected world, there are so many different technologies and, and platforms and techniques that can be used to overcome barriers in, in movement and communication. That's not really the problem. The problem is building trust. Uh, that's the real currency uh, and technology that allows one to, to breach um, whatever barriers you could, you could imagine. Um, and so it's about having a network of colleagues who are committed to this. Uh, it's about getting good advice about the best way to do it and uh, figuring out the best way to manage risk and, uh, and doing it. Now, if you move after October 7th, did the amount of participants in Gaza shrink a bit? Like what happened as it relates to, um, you know, the, the, the people willing to tell their stories? Because I know that in Voices from Gaza, the, the work that you're doing with the Free Press and, and Barry Weiss, you've had some recordings come out just as recently as two weeks ago. But are, are as recently as yesterday, people? and oh, yesterday, a new one coming out today. We're, we're releasing them, uh, you know, several times each week, and we're inter- doing the interviews on a daily basis. And has the quantity of people that want to participate gotten a little tighter out of fear? No, the quantity of people has grown because, first of all, whispered in Gaza was viewed. It had seven hundred fifty thousand views inside Gaza. Oh wow! Um, so uh, it really vast majority of uh, uh, people who are online, I would say, and active on social media have seen one or more Whispered in Gaza clips. And Voices from Gaza is not only being viewed in English translation, but also in Farsi, in Arabic, and so on. And so to your question, the minute people understand that uh, there is a way that they can say their piece to an international audience uh, safely, the number of people who, who want to take us up on that only grows. So there's, you know, we have our own ways of doing outreach, but then there are also people who reach out to us. How do you smuggle the audio out? Is it all sent through digital packets or is it physically sent? Again, the question of uh, logistics and, and, and all of these things is one that relates to, you know, the, the, the commitment of confidentiality. And, okay. the, you know, it, it's a matter of uh, anyone can, you know, through even a web search, recognize the many ways that people can communicate discreetly with one another. There's, you know, new apps are being developed other, every day. Grids, you know, come up, grids come down, different things, you know, affect you know, what choices one has to make. But the bottom line is where there is a will to connect in this world, you can do it. Joseph, is there still internet access in Gaza? Because I know that recently Elon Musk said that he was going to provide 
Starlink to these internationally recognized aid organizations in Gaza, like the United Nations and the World Health Organization. But, you know, for just average Gazans, can they still access the internet and and, um, see what other people are saying and and share content? The answer uh, depends on which part of Gaza, and it depends on what day of the week. Um, Elon Musk made that statement after a period of 15 hours or more in which it seemed that the entire phone grid was down and nearly all internet was down. It would seem that uh, the Israeli government had a reason for wanting, wanting it to be down, and then a decision was reached to reopen it again. What we have seen, and actually this, this, this manifested in Afghanistan after September 11th, when the U.S. and NATO went into Afghanistan. They, they bombed a lot of things, but they didn't bomb the phone grid for the simple reason that um, if you bomb the phone grid, you lose the ability to listen to what anybody is saying on the phone because there's no phone calls to be listened to. So it seems that there will continue to be ways to connect with the interior of Gaza. So you think the um, Israeli military is surgically avoiding the telecommunications systems on the ground so that they can listen and and gain access to planning and knowledge from Hamas. I have no window into those types, that type of decision-making, but I do know that the grid is for the most part open. I'm I'm just taking a look now at some of the themes and and storylines that came out of Um, these conversations, these testimonies that you've secured. And I believe that there were some recordings where um, Palestinians said that the civilians were not involved in the October 7th attack on the Israelis. Am I, am I correct? Did you get that, that content? Yes. There was a woman we spoke to, and this came out on the free press series, voices from Gaza. She was very angry that uh, Hamas, having killed all these people uh, in such brutal and horrific ways, babies, women, uh, uh, elderly people, including even Holocaust survivors, that they then blamed civilians on on all of that uh, carnage. And in doing so, of course, compounded the dehumanization of Palestinians by suggesting that it was uh, the population that did the worst work and presenting themselves, Hamas, as if they were the, somehow the civilizing force. Now, her testimony is not uh, proof uh, that there were no civilians involved, um, but it certainly speaks to a sensibility in Gaza of people who abhor uh, this type of uh, violence and blame Hamas for starting wars it can't win, hiding in bunkers and leaving civilians to suffer the casualties, uh, and living, meanwhile, in the case of many of their leaders, in opulence in Turkey and Qatar while the population suffers. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I think I just read in the I could be mistaken from the source, but I think the Daily Mail just reported yesterday that about four Hamas leaders 
are living in Qatar and Turkey. They fly um, in areas that they think are safe via private jet, including Russia, by the way. And these leaders uh, literally have accumulated billions of dollars. I think um, a number of them have um, north of $3 billion each. And meanwhile, they're running all of the social services, media, and healthcare back in, in Gaza. So um, what happens, like when you talk about this woman who, who spoke out, what's happening on the ground? Like people must realize then that you have these leaders living, you know, as billionaires in Qatar, in Turkey, but yet they're on the ground and they're seeing just, you know, death and destruction. Can they get those can they can they uprise? Do they have the power to do so? And what would happen, according to some of the testimony that you have, if they do try to protest? So the 2019 uh, st- anti-Hamas street demonstrations, uh, which I mentioned, brought uh, one about 1,000 people to the streets of Gaza uh, under the banner Bidna Naish, which means we want to live. That is a lot of people for a small area like Gaza. And of course, uh, they paid a terrible price in uh, prison, torture, collective punishment, punishment of their families, even Palestinians living in the U.S. and and Europe were in a sense punished because anyone who expressed support for those protests on social media anywhere in the world would have their families punished back home. And yet, despite all of that, Four years later, in July of this year, on July 30th, there was a new wave of protests against Hamas. So the urge is there, the courage is there, but these people are also rational in understanding that they cannot uh, internally topple Hamas. Hamas uh, and its ally, Islamic Jihad, together monopolize uh, you know, weaponry in the Strip. And their only hope before October 7th was to somehow galvanize in some kind of international solidarity and support for their cause. So if these Hamas billionaire leaders are living in places like Qatar and Turkey, and then um, Hamas is underground in in tunnels and bunkers, who's running things according to um, the, the, the people that you've interviewed, who's running things above ground? Again, the answer depends on where. It's clear that there's a trend of uh, Hamas authority um, getting weaker and weaker by the day. Uh, they are in hiding for the most part. And so there's you know, a, the beginnings of a deterioration of uh, basic services and uh, various aid groups that are being allowed into portions, particularly in the South, are attempting to fill that gap. And yet, what's interesting uh, is that the climate of fear of Hamas persists. People are still afraid to speak out. And the reason is actually, it may surprise you uh, after everything we're seeing, but the reason is that they they still don't believe uh, with confidence that Hamas is about to be brought down. Uh, for the simple reason that the last four wars ended with the truce and Hamas in power. And so they're, 
you know, they still, a lot, a lot of Gazans still believe that when the dust settles, uh, there's going to be some kind of a, a truce and Hamas will return to governing authority. And, uh, and so that is what keeps them quiet. So, so let's talk about the implications on the region if that happens. Um, look, first, Hamas, there, there hasn't been an election in that area in Gaza since 2006, right? So they're sitting and they're not moving. But um, to your point, like, what if Hamas wins? There's a chance that Hamas can win. Uh, how would the other Arab nations in the region look at Israel and what happens to the civilians in Gaza that are hoping for the ouster of Hamas? Uh, what happens to their lives? So we, we actually released with the Free Press a clip in which someone responded to pretty much that question about um, how a ceasefire would affect uh, Gazans. And the way he put it, I thought it was really interesting. He said, if this war ends in a truce, then in two years, one or two years, Hamas will repeat the same scenario. And in those two years, we'll go backwards another 50 years. But meanwhile, I need two good years just to get back on my feet. So what he's saying is um, it would be a tragedy for him for this war to end with the status quo ante, with Hamas in place, because that is a, an unlivable uh, reality. It's, it's been a generation of misery for Gazans. Joseph, I, I think it was this week, Hamas's representative in, in the United Kingdom, in Great Britain, came out and actually stated that they would continue to behave this way to Israel. They would want to essentially wipe Israel off the map and kill the Jews if there was a ceasefire, they would take that moment in time just to regroup and, and start again. So my question to you is that, first of all, that, I'm, I'm accurate with that, right? That was on the news. Yes, that was Ghazi Hamid, the Hamas spokesman. Yes. But the point is, people are, are expressly stating, like people from Hamas, Hamas representatives are expressly stating out loud on an international level that even post ceasefire, they will continue to attack the Jews and the Israelis and that they'd like to effectively wipe Israel off the map. And they just said it this week in England. That's right. And uh, they've been saying it for uh, decades and they've meant it all along. So here's my question, Joseph. If that's the point, why do we Western civilized people, quote unquote, listen to them saying this type of stuff all along and kind of ignore it. Like it's almost as if it's not going to happen and then it just keeps happening. Why, why do we behave this way? Well, I guess there's a, there are probably a number of reasons. One of them is um, ultimately, I think, a sort of uh, condescending attitude uh, that uh, people don't really mean what they say, uh, that uh, Hamas could somehow be bought off through a system of... Uh, economic and military incentives and disincentives um, and and would be sort of moderated because they need to take out the trash, as some have said, that once they actually have an enclave to hold and administer, they'll want to do a, a superb job at it uh, in order to accrue the esteem of their public. And yet, uh, ideology matters. And uh, 
their commitment to it has been consistent. And these sorts of uh, uh, efforts to sort of tame an organization like this just don't work. There isn't a precedent for for achieving that. So do you think that there should be a ceasefire now? You know, as you know, what what brings us together today is uh, a project that has been about enabling Gazans to explain what they want. And so we have been asking them that question. And their answer is that a ceasefire, a truce, essentially a deal cut between Israel and Hamas that allows Hamas to stay in, in, in place would be devastating for them. As one person put it, if Hamas ends up maintaining control it means that in two years, they're going to repeat the same scenario. And over those two years, it'll take all of us back 50 years. And meanwhile, I need two good years just to get back on my feet. So that is the, the attitude. As horrible and horrifying and tragic as this war is, it will be more tragic if it ends with Hamas in place. So all the money that flows into Hamas from the international community and beyond really isn't benefiting the Gazans that you've been interviewing. We have published alongside the Whispered in Gaza series a lot of reportage uh, from the rights, from the human rights community, from journalists and so on, that documents how Hamas uh, has stolen international aid, denied it to its population, not only food and and, uh, and basic supplies, but also healthcare services, which where there's preferential treatment to Hamas and their cronies. And so it, it's been a very, very clear trend. Enormous money, billions of dollars have entered the Strip from a combination of aid organizations and their Qatari and Iranian patrons. And it does not go to the population. Yeah, I read, I read a terrible um, report, a 2021 study that said that 25% of disease in Gaza is spread from water pollution and that 12% of um, death in young children in Gaza result because of those diseases. So if, if Hamas is receiving all of this money from all over the world, what are they doing with it at all? Is it really just what people are saying as far as like building building bunkers and building rockets? Like where, where are the monies going if they can't even protect the, the people, the, the civilians? So there's, it's a combination of it's serving personal enrichment sort of goals and it's serving ideological goals. So it's not one or the other, it's both. On the ideological side, as has been widely reported and now demonstrated, this vast network of, uh, of tunnels, a kind of a city underneath the Gaza Strip that uh, is as large as the, the territory of Gaza, is a costly enterprise. You have to, you have to build this system. You have to fuel it. Uh, you have to keep the lights on and you have to keep it aerated and so on. I'm not an, a military expert, but I, I certainly have read enough to indicate that their, you know, fighting capacities and the the, light, the range of their missiles have has grown uh, considerably uh, over the past ten years, and with it the costs, the associated costs. 
So all of that is on the on the ideological side of the of of funding the logistics and material needs of a permanent war footing. Uh, but then on the personal side, you have outright theft of, of uh, uh, Hamas leaders and their families who want to live in opulence, for the most part outside of Gaza, while their people suffer. Do you think that um, Gazans are truly looking for a different way of life, an alternative government? Do they prefer economic development to war? Do they want to stay in Gaza after this entire thing ends? Certainly, with regard to the last question, do they want to stay in Gaza? There is a tremendous outflow uh, or attempted outflow by Gazan youth uh, who will brave uh, great peril and often death to leave the Strip by sea. And that has been going on for years. Of course, people want a better life. And uh, as, as this stalemate of 17 years has progressed, more and more young people have, have tried to flee. It isn't easy to do so. The question of whether that tide will somehow be stemmed depends on whether Hamas remains in power or is ousted. And of course, what comes after. And it's quite likely that if a concerted effort at reconstruction of the Strip and rehabilitation of the population, its capacities, were committed to by Israel and its allies, then um, people would be interested in, in, in participating in it and benefiting from it. To the question of do Gazans uh, put economic development ahead of, uh, of war, Certainly, there are quite a few polls that indicate that. And so, you know, just to give you a panoramic thing, that among polls that happened over the past year in Gaza, one showed 73% of Gazans believing that Hamas institutions are corrupt. And by the way, in a poll in which more than 60% of them said that they don't feel free to speak freely. So, wow. It, you know, on the face of it, it would suggest that there were others who agreed with that, but were afraid to say so, even in a, an anonymous survey poll. You had uh, 70% of Gazans saying that they would prefer that another element essentially administer and govern the Strip other than Hamas. Uh, in this case, the question was specifically about the only alternative governing structure that has existed in Gaza in recent years, which is the Palestinian Authority. So there's certainly ample evidence that a lot of Gazans want a different future. There's also polling that, uh, you know, more readily reflects a militant extremist strand in Gaza. You know, I don't want to get too much into the weeds of, of the different questions that are asked, um, the, the moments in which these polls are conducted and how they relate with with war and, and, and truce. But suffice it to say, there are a lot of people in Gaza who are pragmatic and uh, you know, oriented toward whatever system of living will enable them to live better lives, even as there is a tremendous critical mass within Gaza that has been brainwashed by Hamas. It's now been a generation in power that, you know, subscribes to the Hamas ideology. 
Do you feel like the humanity is being lost in all of this, Joseph? Like, you know, the, the young couple with a young child living in Gaza that has hopes and aspirations and dreams as a family, is that all being lost in, you know, terrorism and, and war and, you know, geopolitical, the geopolitical landscape? Um, are, are we really thinking as a, as a global community about those, those, the civilians that just happen to have been, you know, born in that region of the world, and, and these are the circumstances that are upon them? Well, one of the reasons that we put together the Whispered in Gaza project and put a, an emphasis on investing in a really great team of animators and illustrators and musicians to uh, depict the stories of Gaza that those voices told was that we wanted to show, we wanted people to experience the humanity of these people in a way that you really can't. Certainly, the Hamas interview that you described, in which the spokesman Ghazi Hamad said that given the chance they'll be slaughtering more Jews at their earliest possible convenience, is a, a specimen of, of, of content that certainly dehumanizes because it, it shows uh, humanity at its worst. But when you are able to experience the daily life of Gazans who do not subscribe to that ideology and want a different future, that's the path to humanization, to perceiving and understanding these people as, as human beings. And so we feel it's very important for that reason alone to stress that a whole lot of Gazans don't want to be ruled by Hamas and don't want any outcome to the current conflict that would leave Hamas in place. So what's the United States' role in it? I know that's a massive question, but like as it relates to just drilling down again to, to you know, this young couple with a young child in Gaza, is, there, is the U.S.'s role really to help protect and liberate that family? Or is it to um, protect its own interests in the Middle East? What are we really thinking about as, you know, as a nation right now when it comes down to the people in that area of the world? Well, if it's a question of uh, what we are thinking or what we should be thinking, what I hope that um, the U.S. government uh, does is to continue to support the campaign to end Hamas rule in Gaza and just as fervently invest and, and, and bring together other parties in the world that would share in investing in the future of Gaza, in a viable post-Hamas administration of Gaza that is focused on reconstructing the country, re I mean the territory, rebuilding it, uh, investing in its human capacities, uh, and making it a place that is, is livable again. So you think that um, a post-Hamas Gaza at least short term, would be an area that is governed and rebuilt by a collection of countries from the international community at large? This is a very difficult uh, task. It will be costly it, in, in, in human life as well as treasure. If it has any hope, it will require that numerous countries become involved, including Arab countries, Western countries, and Israel. But um, I think it's as important 
to end Hamas rule as it is to uh, deliver on a better alternative, on a better future for these people. When you talk about other Arab nations um, providing assistance post-Hamas, it's interesting to me because it doesn't seem um, like other Arab nations today are trying to assist, again, those individuals that are, are Gazan, you know, the young family, the young couple with a young child in, in getting them to safety. So other than, you know, providing them with arms and, and um, you know, military weapons of war currently, uh, why aren't the other Arab nations coming together? Um, like, you know, it's been very public. Egypt hasn't exactly opened its doors and, and welcomed innocent civilians from Palestine in. Why aren't we seeing that? Initial Arab responses to the October 7th massacre were uh, disappointing. Before the war actually, before Israel even began to respond, no Arab power condemned the atrocities of October 7th, in, in, or at least in, explicitly condemned uh, the Hamas perpetrators of, of those atrocities. So that was a, a moral uh, failing. Uh, does where does it come from? Does it relate in part to Hamas's, uh, you know, powerful media machinery that is so effective in whipping up radical sentiment uh, within uh, Arab countries? It may be some of these uh, governments are afraid of their own populations, but uh, the question of whether uh, Arab governments will step up in a post-Hamas administration of Gaza in some way, is one where the jury is out. And I remain personally hopeful that, uh, that governments will contribute in different ways that may include financial contributions, may include in some way participating in uh, the security of, uh, of the territory. It's, it's really early to tell, because remember, we still don't even know how this war will end in terms of Hamas's yeah. presence in Gaza. Do you think the United States government today is capable of addressing this issue from a knowledgeable perspective, as well as um, unifying to, to be effective? Well, I'm obviously vested in believing that America is capable of, uh, of, doing, uh, of committing to a, uh, a generational challenge. Uh, or even many at the same time, but it, it depends on sustained public support, both for um, uh, ending Hamas rule and oppression of Gazans and destruction of Israeli hopes and aspirations, as well as uh, committing to the uh, reconstruction of, of the territory in a way that, that safeguards uh, peace and a better life for these people. I looked at a, a recent um, poll of Americans, Joseph, that broke down demographic profiles by age, and it seemed like the younger generations actually are supporting Hamas, and the older the individual becomes, the less they support Hamas and the more they support Israel. The, the poll was basically like, do you support Israel or do you support Hamas? Um, do you think the younger generation, it was like, I, and I believe the poll, I'd have to find it, but I think the poll like showed that more than 50% of the younger generation actually supports Hamas. Do you think they're looking at that as, um, 
Hamas is a terrorist group and we're supporting this terrorist group? Or are they thinking about, you know, I, the, the individual civilians that happen to be born in a region of the world that's be currently ruled by Hamas, Gaza? Like, do you think they, they understand that younger demographic understands that they're supporting a terrorist organiza- organization? This reflects the success that Hamas enjoys at monopolizing the narrative about what's happening in Gaza, such that the young people you're referring to are apparently persuaded uh, or buying Hamas's line that Hamas is the Palestinian people and the Palestinian people are Hamas. What these young people will hopefully, if they want to dig a little deeper, come to recognize is that Gazans want Hamas out, that the world needs to choose between supporting Hamas and supporting the Palestinians whom Hamas oppresses. One is antithetical to the other. They are irreconcilable. So from your perspective, like what, what should we be doing just as a people in general to, to make that um, distinction clear, the, the, the Palestinian versus Hamas? Well, we're doing our part by through the Whispered in Gaza project and through our partnership with the Free Press Now, uh, Voices from Gaza, to give a voice, give a, a platform to these voices, to Gazans who want to explain what life under Hamas rule has been and why they want a different future and what that future looks like. So I feel that the first step is to enable those voices to be heard and to grapple with them, grapple with their implications, and then think about uh, the various formulations that are being uttered on the streets in protests or in policy deliberations and everything in between. And I should say it's a dual challenge. On the one hand, those who justify Hamas violence do need to choose between supporting Hamas and supporting the Palestinians it oppresses. On the other hand, those who, from from a different standpoint, conflate Palestinians in Gaza with Hamas as all one and the same, should recognize that there are a whole lot of Gazans who want a different future and ask what can be done to empower them. What we do, Joseph, is in every episode of Some Future Day, we use Some Future Day to start the beginning of a sentence and then the guest ends it in like a predictive type of way. So I wanted to uh, put this out to you. We'll make it, I think, broad and generalized, but in some future day, individuals in Gaza will. Avail themselves of the opportunity to uh, learn and teach tolerance, to develop their own capacities and the the territory they live in, and uh, join hands with Israelis in uh, in co development and a, a a future of partnership. That would be beautiful, Joseph. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that we didn't cover today? Uh, really, I think we've covered a lot. Um, I'm very happy that you know you gave us gave me the space to to lay some of this out and. Uh, yeah, you know, happy to, to cooperate with you in any way and sort of spreading the word. I know your time is very important. So thank you so much for joining me today. For ongoing insights surrounding these important topics, you can join the conversation 
on my social media channels, including Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Mark Beckman. And to sign up for my newsletter on Substack, you can find me at markbeckman.substack.com. To make sure you don't miss a show, be sure to subscribe to Some Future Day across all major platforms worldwide, including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Special thanks to New York University for producing Some Future Day, and a big shout out to my producer extraordinaire, John Boomhofer, for being patient and always encouraging me to push through. Thanks a lot, John. Have a great day.